Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. Ooh. <laughs> and you are watching AM to DM. See how I grabbed it? I like it. I grabbed it. it Share the love. Mm. I'm so happy to have you back. It's good, to, it's see good you. to see you. Honey, all right, here's a tweet from Alyssa. Mm. Poor, sweet Alyssa. Uh, maybe it's just the Generation <laughs> Z in me, but how did people burn CDs? Like, how did you just get a blank CD and put songs on it? Oh, oh. Alyssa. What Alyssa, have you done? Alyssa, she got dragged Ooh. by everybody. Child. It was uh, what's called the pylon. A pylon. Everybody was like, yearbook, attendant, present. I have something to say about this. It was like from both sides of the aisle <laughs> oh, as well. Like there were yeah. older people, of course, yeah. that were like, stop making me feel old. And then there were young people that were like, hey, now I stop know. making me feel young or dumb. <laughs> like I know what a CD is. Yeah. Yeah. So that well, was like tough. Yeah. But Here's the thing. Yeah. Do you actually know right. how to burn a CD? Do you, you know own, how to? Of course not. I don't know how to burn wood. <laughs> uh, I, I, I saw her tweet and was like, oh, you know, stop making me feel, you know, like old and um, uh, ancient. And then I was like, well, actually, I don't know how we did it. I remember doing it. I was burning all my Brandy and Destiny's Child <laughs> <laughs> CDs. But yeah, I, uh, fair question, Alyssa. Fair I feel question. like if you put me down in front of like an older computer, because most uh -huh. computers don't even have CD-ROM drives anymore, right. I yeah. could re maybe remember how you put a song on a CD, but I sure as heck don't understand the science behind it. Mm -hmm. I will definitely say that. Even back in the day, that felt like some kind of magical thing that happened. And remember when we would do like the VHS tapes That's and stuff? I, yeah. Like even more? I don't know how tapes work. I sure don't know how, I'm sorry, records work? Yeah. Like, could you imagine if somebody was like, nope. do you know how to press a record? Sure don't. Absolutely not. So I listen, don't. amongst all the dragons that happened in poor Alyssa's mentions, a light did shine through the darkness. <laughs> Grady Bush tweeted, CDs are made of a substrate that is etched by a laser. Born in a spot and you produce a pit, which represents the digital value zero. Skip a spot and you get what is called a land, representing the value one. Music recorded on a CD is done at a resolution of 44,100 bits per second. And I wanna say that that was tweet one of many yeah. from Grady Bush. All right? Grady he had a really, lot to say. He really went back yeah. and forth. Yeah. Um, so thank you for the knowledge, Grady, Grady was like, welcome to the Matrix. We really did. <laughs> <laughs> One to zero, I don't know. You That's know. how CDs work. That's all I got. That's yeah. all I got. Well, fair point from Alyssa here, because really, her mentions were a disaster, and still are. She said, since I'm getting jumped to hell and back, look at that, oh, look at that image of The Simpsons, um, I might as well add that I'm 17. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I feel for you, girl. Here's Be my nice. thing, Be here's nice. my thing. It's not like she was like, hey, 30-somethings, what was it like inventing the wheel? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, it's a she wasn't trying to be mean about it. She was genuinely it. curious. She I was think. genuinely curious, and I, you know, the children are the future. You shouldn't squash that curiosity down. I also want to say, Alyssa, you, you said maybe it's just the Generation Z in me. That's, That's a beautiful quote. I Put like that on a T-shirt, Alyssa. Start making some money. I like that branding. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Twitter. We do want to hear from you though. When was the last time you felt really old? What happened? What was the scenario? Let us know using the hashtag AM to Dorian Gray. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna live forever. <laughs> um, I would say I was, uh, you know, when I was in graduate school, just a mere two, three years ago. Uh, that's not nope. true. That's not nope. true. Nope, that is much <laughs> longer check, than that. journalism. Um, but I, I remember teaching comp and I was teaching college freshmen at Rutgers and I mentioned Alanis Morissette's song, uh, Ironic and Blank Stares and I realized they didn't even know who Alanis Morissette was. 
<sighs> shook. That said, there's a new musical coming out, I hear, and it's supposed I, to be really because good. Because it's that far away that we can revive her with a musical. <laughs> They're going to yeah. do that. Yeah. I'll say this, man. I was in a liquor store the other day, and I yeah. almost put out a crack. It was like, born before this date in 1997. And I was like, that's got to be a mis- Nope. Oh, no, that's correct. Oh, that's- oh. Ouch. Yeah. Well, let's get into this news so we can forget that moment. Uh, More news this morning, of course, on the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, From BuzzFeed News reporter Hazel Shearing, here's a tweet. Turkey's president has stepped up pressure on Saudi Arabia over the, quote, political killing of Jamal Khashoggi. BuzzFeed Deputy World News Editor Hayes Brown joins us now. Good morning, Hayes. Good morning, guys. All right, so what's the latest with Khashoggi and what is Turkey saying happened inside the consulate? So the latest is that last week, Saudi Arabia finally confirmed that, no, he isn't missing. No, he didn't walk out of the consulate. He is dead. He died while inside the consulate uh, earlier in October. And what happened most recently is Turkey's president, President Erdogan, came out and said, we believe that, yes, he is dead, that Saudi Arabia did it. And what's really interesting is what he didn't say. So when speaking out about the need for an independent investigation to actually get to the bottom of what happened to Khashoggi, he said that King Salman of Saudi Arabia believes him. He knows he had nothing to do with it. What he didn't say was that he believes that Crown, Pr- Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who is the de facto ruler of the country for the last year, had nothing to do with it. He did not say that MBS was absolved of any responsibility, which is a big deal because uh, since the word go with this, people have assumed that the, if uh, Khashoggi was killed inside the Saudi consulate, that Mohammed bin Salman would have had to have known about it. He would have had to have been involved in some way. And one of the things that we've seen is the firing of someone very close to uh, 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 bin Salman named uh, Saud al-Khatami, who is a member of the Intelligence Bureau, who has been his right-hand man and, was, and allegedly Skyped in during the interrogation uh, that led to Khashoggi's death. So to say that, to leave Mohammed bin Salman out of this, uh, I'm sure King Salman is believable statement is a big deal. Yeah, and and speaking of the Saudi uh, crown prince, I wanna bring up this tweet from Tom Guerra, um, an editor here at BuzzFeed News that I just saw a few minutes ago and Isaac also pointed it out. Spare a thought for Khashoggi's son, banned from leaving Saudi Arabia, who had to go and do this today. And can you see this? Have you seen this tweet, um, Hayes? I have seen seen the tweet. And if you look at uh, the son's face, you can see that it's very stone-faced. You can see that it looks like he does not want to be there. Like, it it is a lot to uh, have the inclination that the head of your government had your father killed and then had to go meet with him. That wow. is- So he's absolutely. literally shaking the crown prince's hand. Literally shaking wow. the crown prince's hand. And that is something that he probably had no choice in having to do. Like if the choice is between that or detention, that's not a great choice. Not a choice. And, and so to that point, Hayes, I want to ask, what are the Saudis? What is their official statement right now? Because it has changed so many times. So many times at this point. So. First, the statement was that, no, Khashoggi left soon after his appointment. He walked in, he got the documents he needed, he left. And to that, to that yesterday we saw from CNN uh, security camera footage that showed what looked to be a Saudi operative wearing Khashoggi's clothes wandering around Istanbul uh, and in an attempt to try and uh, make it look like, yes, he did leave. They, they nixed that story. Next up was the idea that, yes, he was here, but he died in a brawl with the 15 Saudi operatives who had been flown in a few hours before. 
Khashoggi was in his 50s. He was not fighting a bunch of Saudi operatives. So they nicked that story. Now they're saying that he died while in a chokehold while attempting to get him to come back to the kingdom, which it, none of it is good right now. Uh, but yeah, the Saudi story has changed several times. Yeah. And no, none of this is good. And I want to say there are very few saints in this story because let's talk about Turkey's President Erdogan. Uh, he's been understandably very aggressive and outspoken as we yeah. were speaking earlier, um, you know, really pushing, uh, you know, the Saudi Arabian government to hold themselves responsible for this murder. But he has a terrible record on his own as the president of Turkey in terms of press freedom. So how is he, where does he fit into this as terms of putting on pressure when, you know, he has his own issues? Well, I mean, see, the thing is that Turkey and Saudi Arabia have been regional rivals for a while. Uh, both Saudi Arabia and Turkey have claimed to want to be in charge of the Muslim world inside the Middle East. Uh, so they have had such an amazing, really, uh, campaign of pushing out leaks to the press, using the press in a way that, honestly, I didn't think Erdogan was capable of. It's been very um, slick, to be honest. Uh, go, cite, having the press cite police officials, unnamed Turkish officials, since day one of this story to get the story out there that, yes, we believe that Khashoggi was murdered. But Turkey right now is, I believe, still number one in the world in terms of jailing journalists. Uh, Erdogan, it has no love for a free press. Many of the newspapers inside Turkey are unabashedly pro-government or controlled directly by uh Erdogan's party. So he is not the person you want to look to for uh, the rights of journalists around the world. Wow. So complicated. We have a tweet here from Softy38 about that photo um, of uh, Shikoji's son um, shaking the hand of your father's killer. That photo is so chilling. Um, so here's a tweet from journalist Rajib Solu. We also wanted to discuss Turkish TV broadcast images showing Saudi consulate staff in Istanbul are burning documents one day after Khashoggi murder. I mean, as you've already said, it's just the more we learn, the more stunning all of this becomes. So what are the implications of now seeming evidence that they are destroying evidence? I mean, here's the thing. It, the thing that a lot of people are calling for, and now including President Erdogan, is an independent investigation, preferably set up by the United Nations or somebody to come in and actually give a look at what actually happened. For the Saudis to have destroyed documents, and let's not forget, too, the day before Turkish investigators got the chance to come in and look around the consulate, the Saudis brought in a cleaning crew that were photographed. So a lot has already been taken down, I'm sure. So uh, it's going to be that much harder to get down to the core of the truth of what happened inside that consulate. Which is probably what they're trying to accomplish. Okay, I, I do want to change gears here a little bit with you, Hayes. Wanted to talk to you about this. Before you go, here's a tweet from Maggie Haberman. Van Jones' interview of Kushner at Citizen by CNN event starting now. Jones asks, how did you get this job? You have, like, the dopest job in the world. The secretary of everything. How did you wind up in this position? <laughs> and uh, put a bit more pointedly here, uh, I guess Jamil Smith was feeling froggy and decided to jump with this tweet. Uh, I don't know what happened to Van Jones. Frankly, I just hope that it isn't contagious. Spices. Yeah, are we doing fire tweets yet? Yeah, right? Apparently. <laughs> um, Hayes, what happened with Van Jones and Jared Kushner yesterday? So 
So the the most uh, favorable line on this is the fact that Van Jones and Jared Kushner have worked together a lot on prison reform. You know, the same prison reform that Kanye West came in to talk at the White House about that prison reform, which is going great. Um, but the the fact that he asked this question, he got rightfully dragged Van Jones for this. How did you get this job? The answer is I married the president's daughter. That is how Jared Kushner got the job secretary of everything. And I would also argue, Mr. Jones, that it is not the dopest job ever. Uh, what has Jared Kushner really accomplished during this time uh, in the West Wing? TVD. Yeah. Receipts. <laughs> I, feel Receipts. Like, I feel like Van Jones is sitting in the shade today, and we will leave it there. Thank yeah. you so much, Hayes. Thank you, guys. I love it. I saw people saying, more Hayes on AM to DM. He has so many fans. I, I mean, again, yeah. and he has the range. You he know? has the he range. He has the depth. He has the insights. Yeah. And he can also say, maybe he's not the yeah. best job in the yeah. world. But I'm not done dragging Van Jones yet. Oh, okay. I just think, again, uh, you know, Jared Kushner's role, you know, you know, the secretary of everything. Okay, let's talk about everything because he definitely has played a role in the relationship between our government and Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And and I just see I just feel with literally uh, Jamal Khashoggi's son this morning having to shake the hand of the crown prince. The fact that yesterday Van Jones uh, purported, I guess he thinks of himself as a journalist on CNN, had an opportunity to really push and ask important questions and follow-up questions to Jared Kushner. It, it, it's, it's just... Cause, cause ah. That is important. He did ask a question about uh -huh. it, but then he just let Kushner off the hook with a very much non-answer. Jones has issued a statement since then, though, I should know. Yeah. And he basically said, listen, Kushner is known for being so tight-lipped. Didn't you just want to hear him say anything? That's his defense. Do your job. Here's a tweet <laughs> from BuzzFeed News Editor-in-Chief Ben Smith, who just like loves reporting so much. He says he's been missing uh, campaign reporting and he came to Vegas uh, to cover Obama's rally out here. Ben joins us now to talk about that rally and the predicament former President Obama has found himself in. Good morning, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Thanks hey. for coming on. Before we get into Obama's speech, Ben, I wanted to ask you, what do you miss about campaign reporting? Well, yeah, I mean, I think if you're if you follow politics, you spend a lot of time on Twitter and obviously we all love Twitter, but it is it's valuable to get out and talk to people who are going to early vote in Summerlin or or, or who are who have turned up for an event with Barack Obama and just, you know, get some get, get, talk to people who are not totally consumed by this conversation all the time about how they're actually experiencing politics, which, you know, for a lot of them isn't the sense of emergency that I think a lot of people here on Twitter and of crisis feel. You miss the people. You miss the people, Ben. That's what you're saying? Yeah, although slightly less after a red eye from Vegas. <laughs> okay, well, all right, all right. We'd like transparency here. I did want to ask you, you note uh, in, in your reporting that watching President Obama speak, he was uh, very strategic. Uh, of course, he's always been that way, but perhaps even more so than usual. And you, you said that he, was, he seemed to be in a bit of a bind or a box um, post-presidency while trying to campaign. Uh, how did he get in that box and how's he navigating it? Well, I mean, I think something, you know, he, when he was elected, he was... He had incredibly high approval ratings, 60s or 70s, and they kind of slid down through his first year. And at some point, probably in his late first or second term, he, he basically realized that when he attached it to himself to an issue, if it was a popular issue, it would get less popular because this country is so polarized. You know, 40-some percent of Americans really dislike him at this point. And 
So he has to be really careful when he goes and campaigns for someone that he doesn't wind up energizing the other side as much as he energizes his side. And so if you see what he's been doing this, you know, this fall, it's, it's these very kind of like slightly muted events. Well, you know, there's 2000 people is not a small event, but it's not a rally in a stadium. He didn't even he didn't mention the name of the Republican he was there to campaign against. He just kind of said made a joke about him in passing um, and generally is, I think, trying to navigate his role as a as the most beloved figure in the Democratic Party without having but the country is so polarized that he is not able to act as sort of a national leader there's nobody's open to persuasion right now Mm. all right i I did want to ask what are the stakes of this race in nevada why did obama go out to vegas you know it's 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 one of the senate races that if democrats are going to win the senate it's one they have to win a year ago a lot of people would have said it was an automatic win for democrats because trump nationally unpopular this is a state that hillary clinton won Right now, it's it is a very very close race, um, in part because people who supported Donald Trump, rural rural voters in in rural Nevada, are remain very very energized and are showing up for him. And there's the question: is whether Latino voters, in particular young Latino voters, are going to show up in the midterms? Um, they had uh, America Ferrera, Jay Balvin out there yesterday, you know, with that in mind. Right. And salt and pepper. How dare you forget that they were also. At- I don't really I think that was just with like like people of my generation in mind. I don't really know what that was about, but they were. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was fun to see salt and pepper. Do you know how to burn a CD, Ben? <laughs> Get it. No, I'm just, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Old joke. Old joke. You know, I, I think I do. Oh, I think gosh. I wow. It'd be your own white people. All right, Ben, thank you for joining us. We will stop harassing you. Oh, it's always a pleasure to come on here and be insulted. You know? <laughs> Thanks, Ben. It is one of the joys of the show. You just get to kind of grill your boss. It's great. He's so wonderful. All right, friends. uh, Clearly, we are having quite a Tuesday morning. I hope you are, too. Later in the show, I'm sitting down with Malcolm Jamal Warner, and Isaac is going to be sitting down with Joel Egerton and Garrett Conley, author of Boy Erased. It's now a movie. It's all happening. It's a really thoughtful movie. Yeah. Yeah. But next, it's Fire Tweets. More. More. All right, we've already had a lot of fire tweets this morning. We're pretty hot. But we're gonna keep them moving. We got some real fire tweets right here. Here we go. Bad Mommy, you tweeted, have y'all ever acted crazy? Then after the fact, you sit there like, I really did not have to do all that. Literally uh, our last interview. Every day, (laughs) every day. Every every, segment on AMTV. (laughs) Every morning, every evening too. It's the mood, it's the gift, it's the gift. All right, this tweet comes from Cousin, just Cousin. If you're at a black person's house and they ask, what you about to do? They just politely asked you to leave. Oh. <laughs> That's oh. a pro tip. Pro tip, what, what you about to do? Okay, I'll, I'll get yeah, into the next fire tweet. <laughs> Brian, you tweeted, man, you really think your teachers are pure and innocent growing up until you're an adult and all your wild friends are now employed Teaching the youth of America. Ah. <laughs> That's the realest. Teachers go hard. Teachers go hard. Little known fact. When I joined Twitter in 2008, my Twitter handle was actually Saeed Jones. The ferocity, I created it when I was teaching high school because, you know, ninth graders are nosy. No, here's the thing. <laughs> when I worked as a bartender, uh-huh. the biggest day of the year was always the last day of school. Woo! And teachers went off. Look at us airing all yours tea. <laughs> Tell us more. Tweet us all of your teacher tea. Okay, this tweet comes from Brock. Oh, Brock, okay. 
Me, driving. I'll hit you, bitch. Me, walking. Hit me, bitch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That to me is like That's the writer-editor relationship, <laughs> right? When I'm an editor, I'm like, ah, oh, he's just not taking my edits. Yeah. And when you're writing, you're like, this man does not understand what I'm doing. It also to do. feels very New York because I mm. feel like pedestrian in New, in New York are like, I dare, I wish you would. I wish you would make my day. <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> Trustin, you tweeted, when you try to wash a spoon, and it washes you back. <laughs> I love this tweet. Here's the thing, this tweet is from, we saw like another tweet, copied it, yeah. it went viral, and we loved it. So Clocked we, it. We found the original. This is from March. I just, I have yet to figure out how to wash a spoon and it not get. You just don't turn the water on so hard, Saeed. Just, oh, soft, oh, soft water. It's like conditioning. All right, uh, tweet of the day. <laughs> washing your face. It's like conditioning. <laughs> okay, uh, this tweet comes from. <laughs> Sorry. This tweet of the day comes from Robotic Crab, which is a pretty funny username. The first person to deliver a baby. Yeah, it totally came out on like this rope, but uh, you probably don't even need that. <laughs> yeah, who figured out what to do with the umbilical I'm cord? I'm just saying the first person that was like, it's uh, ah, do we cut it, going. do we keep it? Shout out to the moms. Listen, coming up, Saeed <laughs> is sitting down with Malcolm Jamal Warner, but up next, we're going live from the district. Stick around. Do we throw it out? out? Welcome back. We are going live from the district with BuzzFeed News politics reporter Lisandra Villa. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. How are you? Pretty good. Doing good. Let's start with this tweet from the Washington Post to Felicia Sanmez. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist. Trump says in Houston, as the crowd roars back, USA, USA. <sighs> so... Cool, 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 cool. Lisa, what are the implications of the president openly adopting the language of the alt-right? Well, words mean everything, right? Um, and, and this sort of shows that Trump is okay with being embraced with the alt-right crowd, uh, which we, you know, he, is certainly something that he's been open to in the past. Um, but again, just in terms of rhetoric, um, this means a lot. It means a lot. Well, Trump was in Houston campaigning for Ted Cruz uh, when he made that statement, uh, which makes this tweet from Doug Hinwood um, all the more interesting. As Doug argues, one reason it's so hard to beat this guy, uh, he doesn't give a shit. Mm. Uh, and he quotes a New York Times story here. Still, Mr. Trump has never apologized for attacking Mr. Cruz's family and refused to do so again on Monday. Quote, I don't regret anything, honestly. It all worked out very nicely. So whether we're talking about insulting Ted Cruz and then campaigning for him or bragging about being a nationalist, um, how is all of this working out for him? Well, for Ted Cruz, this um, Ted Cruz is obviously locked in a more competitive race than you'd think. Um, Beto O'Rourke is definitely still the underdog, um, but it's it's working out nicely for Ted Cruz right now that that Trump is coming to his aid uh, in a conservative state. But if you think back to 2016, it was crazy back then, right? I mean, not that it's not crazy anymore. But Ted Cruz and real Donald Trump, uh, real Donald Trump, good. I'm calling him by his Twitter handle now. Um, Donald 
Donald Trump, um, were were fighting each other like every day, you know, and saying mean things about about um, each other. So anyway, um, yeah, it, it, there's always been a crazy competition there, and now all of a sudden they're a united front and trying to get Ted Cruz across the finish line here for the midterms. Wow, Lisa, I call Saeed the ferocity all the time in real life, so don't worry about that. Uh, listen, at the same rally because he was doing the most, Trump said, "quote We're going to be putting in a 10% tax cut for middle." income families next week. We've been working on it for a few months. It's brand new. Now, Lisa, I have a sneaking suspicion that that's not possible, but why is that? <laughs> Your instincts are correct. Um, Congress is out until after the midterms. Uh, the midterms are at the beginning of November. No one really knows what Donald Trump is talking about there. Um, and I, I don't know that there would be a whole lot of room to work something like that in before the end of the year. Okay. And um, do we have any indication? I mean, I, you know, I feel that this is the president lying um, as a campaign promise. Um, he's been called out on it. But do we have a sense that when Congress is back in session after midterms that there is actually a plan on the agenda to uh, go for another tax cut? I just really don't see it um, because we're so close to the end of the year here. It obviously takes Republicans a long time to get things on the same page, even on the couple of things that they've managed to um, get across the finish line on their agenda. So I don't see it. And then it, it'll also depend, obviously, too, like wh what they're able to get done. Um, the new Congress will begin right away in January. But yeah, it's definitely it, it's definitely fair to think of that as as a false campaign promise. Um, it just it's not going to happen. There's just no way it's going to happen. Well, here's a tweet from Roll Call. Quote, I see myself as a transitional figure, Nancy Pelosi said. I have things to do, books to write, places to go, grandchildren first and foremost, aw, to love. And here's a follow-up from you, Lisa, <laughs> on that quote. I am totally unmoved by yeah. that. Tweet Isaac is not. Uh, Pelosi tells Dana Bash, it means there has to be a transition at some point in all of this. If Hillary Clinton had won, I was ready to go home. And, and, and of course, that is very interesting because a lot of people uh, kind of have been saying maybe it's time for Nancy Pelosi to go home. So what do we make of hearing these kinds of comments from Pelosi herself? Pelosi's comments are interesting because this is sort of the first time that she's ever sort of shown that she understands that she won't be around for forever. It raises questions about whether um, she thinks she has the votes if she comes in um, as a transitional speaker and if that that uh, will fare better with the caucus and what the caucus wants. Um, and, and it raises questions, too, about what does transitional mean for Pelosi? Is transitional just till the next election um, or or is transitional until like she's no longer able to do the job. Um, so we've, I've got a lot of questions about that. A lot of questions, and I'm sure you will continue to report on them. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for your time. Bye. Of course. Thank you. All right. Remember, later in the show, Isaac sits down with Joe Edgerton and author Garrett Conley to talk about Boy Erased. But up next, I sit down with the iconic actor Malcolm Jamal Warner to talk about his great show. Uh, stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm joined by Malcolm Jamal Warner, who stars as AJ the Raptor on The Resident. Good morning. I the shit down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
are you? Like, what kind of like, what, the what is about yeah, to happen? Yeah. I was to sit down. Yeah, okay, sit down. <laughs> I love this. Uh, you tweeted something this morning I wanted to read. Okay. I just, I got nosy. Yeah. Um, you said, um, so I was in my hotel room in New York last night by myself, bawling my eyes out watching The Resident. I know being a dad has made me more sensitive. <laughs> I love that. But damn, y'all, I wasn't ready. The Resident last night was a great hour of TV, which yeah. is, that has to be really cool. Yeah. And of course, I just think it's so interesting. You, of course, have been doing TV and you've been on screen all our lives in sure. a lot of ways. Sure. What's it like watching yourself, though, now? Um, at this point in my life, um, it's a very different experience watching myself. Yeah. Um, because it's the first time where I look at my work and don't feel like I suck. Mm. Really? Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, artists, you know, we're always really hard on ourselves. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, um, my experience with this show is that, and I've said it before, but I feel like I'm finally getting the handle on my craft that I've been chasing since Cosby. Okay. You know, because you do, uh, you know, you do sitcom for so long. Mm -hmm. um, that was such a, um, you know, formative part of my life mm -hmm. and my craft and all right. of that. Um, and, and oftentimes it's hard to break out of that, that, that sitcom energy. Mm -hmm. Between that, between being, you know, a young person growing up in the in, in the business and right. having to be professional, hi, how right. are you? And just learn that. Yeah. So yeah. all of that and then the public persona part of it, how mm -hmm. you deal with that part of the mm -hmm. job. So I think I'm at a point now where um, as an artist, as a man, as a father, I'm more comfortable in my skin mm -hmm. than I have been before. Mm -hmm. And I see that informing my work when I actually look at my work now. Yeah. Um, on, on the show, you play a cardiothoracic surgeon, yeah. uh, and I, I was just wondering, like, are you, are you more interested in the medicine? Are you learning a lot about it, or is it just, you know, you're, you're focusing on the role in, in a different way? Uh, I'm more, um, I'm probably now working on the show a little more fearful of uh, the medical field. Okay. Um, because, you know, the, the thing that, uh, one of the great things about The Resident mm -hmm. is we deal with uh, you know, the darker side mm -hmm. of um, medical malpractice. Right, what how, can go wrong. Yeah, and, 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 and how hospitals will cover up what has gone wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so I think before, you know, I had always thought about, okay, well, if, if I'm in a hospital, for any kind of reason, surgery, whatever, I don't want to feel any pain. Right. Whereas now I'm like, like I don't want them to mess yeah. up. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's intense. Yeah. That's really intense. Yeah. Wow, and, and I know you, you are pretty open of talking in, about politics and, mm. and tweets and, you know, healthcare has become very political. So is that is that something that's also kind of been on your mind, like just thinking about what like healthcare is like going on in our Yeah, I mean, and, and, there, and there are uh, several instances where we talk about that uh, in the show mm -hmm. um, and just how, you know, um, you know, there is, um, you know, there's the battle that, that the, the doctors have, the mm -hmm. good doctors right. on the show have between, uh, you know, their the hospitals make decisions They're based businesses. on budget. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and doctors. There was actually a line la in the show last night, an episode last night. Um, paraphrasing, but hospitals make decisions based on budgets. Mm -hmm. Doctors make decisions on what's best for the patient. Wow. Um, so you know, there are, are many times where the show kind of deals with mm -hmm. healthcare and mm -hmm. how. A hospital bills, you know, literally, you know, take people under. Oof, that's so intense. I um, mean, important and important. And, and yeah, I love that yeah. the show brings all of that into the context of drama, right? It's intense. It's like you're saying, like, you get emotional watching it, yes. you know, um, even as it's delving into issues, yeah. you know. Um, what, what can you tell us to expect, like, uh, more from season two? Um, you know, there, there's still things that are unfolding okay. uh, for us. Okay. Um, you know, there uh, people are really closely 
following the uh, you know the Austin and Dr. Okafor. Uh, you know, what's that relationship mm -hmm. going to turn mm -hmm. into? Mm -hmm. um, there's some really, really, really cool upcoming stuff for, okay. for my role uh, as well, which I'm excited about. And you, you told me during the break, you're going right back to L.A. tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we work, we shoot in Atlanta. Okay, okay. So, right so the flight's not that bad. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but I'm, I'm, in, I'm in like every scene tomorrow. <laughs> Woo. Uh, but but it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's a great show to be on. Yeah. When I first started, so I, I did the last three episodes mm -hmm. of the first season. Okay. And then they brought me back uh, as a series regular for mm -hmm. season two. Mm -hmm. But when I first started on the show, the show hadn't aired yet. Mm -hmm. So all I saw was the pilot. Mm -hmm. So when the show started to air, uh, my wife and I are watching it, and we became really huge fans of the show, mm -hmm. even before I even come right. on. Yeah, so it, that's it, great. Yeah, yeah. So it's exciting to like you, you're watching a show that you love, mm -hmm. and then knowing you're going to be on. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was really a great experience for me. So different from the rest of the cast, mm -hmm. I get to really enjoy the show as a viewer mm -hmm. more than they can because they've been there from you know from day one. That's so cool to be able to work on something you genuinely love, and with people that are genuinely cool. Like it's hard to get a show. It's hard enough to get a good show. Mm. It's hard enough to get a show with good people. Mm. But to have a good show with good people is, it's literally a blessing. That's wonderful, yeah. that's wonderful. Well, and you were talking about this earlier about you know one of the challenges is you grew up in the public eye, you grew up in this industry, and you've learned a lot along the way, as yeah. we do. And um, certainly in the last year, people thinking about Me Too and, and, and everything we've learned and are still working on, I've been wanting to have more conversations with men about what we have learned and what we are beginning to realize uh, we need to work on more. So I wanted to ask that to you as sure. well. What is something that you've kind of begun to think through um, in terms of you know, what men need to uh, break through? Sure. Um, well, I, I think first what you're talking about is the difference between smart men and men who still just don't get it. Mm. Um, because there are, um, there are many of us on the smarter side who, you know, let's say for example, you know, a joke comes up that might be funny, at least I've, I know I've had this experience, mm -hmm. a joke might come up that I think might be funny, mm -hmm. but I don't know this woman well enough uh, to know how that joke is gonna land mm -hmm. on her. So mm -hmm. the best thing to do is just to keep it to myself. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think if we can do more of um, thinking before we speak, mm. I think that can really go a long way. I mean, we had, a, we had something, um, you know, recently, we're, you know, someone was, was just, just, just saying something popping off at the mouth and not realizing what he was saying. It was like, dude, you got to be careful with yeah. that. Are you listening? Right, you right, right. We're in a, we're, we're, we're in a different mm -hmm. uh, a kind of awareness mm -hmm. that we all need to be aware of, yeah. if you will. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you've also, uh, and you mentioned her, uh, you have an adorable little girl. Of an adorable daughter, and you're so affectionate, and it's just, it's beautiful and lovely to see. Um, is it fair to say you, you, rec you, you appreciate, or rather that you're being intentional about making sure people can see what it's like, like a father loving and celebrating his daughter? I, yeah. Is that conscious? Yeah, it's definitely, yeah. it's definitely, it, it's, it's definitely conscious that I am doing that. Like, mm -hmm. that's not the reason I'm doing right. it. Right. But I'm you're doing it because you love her. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm very conscious yeah. of um, you know the importance of um, you know seeing you know parent and child, but really seeing man with uh, you know with with the, with our sons, but with our daughters. Like mm -hmm. you know there are um, I think it's always an interesting relationship you know between fathers and daughters mm -hmm. um, because the, the the way a father treats his daughter mm -hmm. is going to speak loudly um, with regard to the type of men 
uh, that she chooses in her life. Mm. And uh, I think to be able to uh, set a strong foundation and to be able to give uh, my daughter uh, all of the love in the world, even at times when she doesn't want it, um, I think those are all things that will inform her in having healthy relationships. Absolutely. With men. Beautiful. Well, to that point, last year you were not. Or not. You <laughs> yeah. know, I like it. It's people, work. Yeah. It's a work in yeah, progress, people, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think if we are able to say it's a work in progress, like that's a good sign. Yeah. It's a good sign. Um, last year y'all had matching Halloween costumes and it was so cute. I do want to ask, do you know what you're gonna be for Halloween this yes. year? Yes. Are you gonna match again? <laughs> we are. <laughs> <laughs> we are. Yeah, we're gonna be we're gonna be elephants. <gasps> This Halloween, yeah, we've got the yeah, we've got the elephant costumes already. (laughs) And are you like, are you like, I am so excited to be her elephant, or are you just like, I love my daughter so much? Yeah, I'm. I'm, (laughs) I love my wife and daughter so much that I'm willing to dress up. You know, I had so much fun last Halloween though. We know we, we we did the skunk thing. Um, and it was cool. I yeah. came front. Yeah, it wouldn't have been my idea. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm very much into my family, and my family is very much into things like yeah. that. So I it's fun. That. I love it. So they're bringing something new to you. Yes. I love yes. it. Well, Malcolm, thank you so hey, say, much for joining you, us, thank and you, say hello to the family. I definitely um, will. Friends, of course, you can watch The Resident on Monday nights on Fox. It's great. It's so good. Um, and up next, we have some tips for planning your Halloween party on the cheap. So you there know, you go. we've got a theme. <laughs> Thanks again. Here's a classic Halloween tweet from Katie Dippold. TBT to Halloween when I dressed as the Babadook, but my friend's house had a more of a grown-ups drinking wine vibe. That is such a classic tweet. I think that's like top 10 tweets of all time. Well, this is Save the Day brought to you by Wendy's 4 for 4 meal. And regardless of what kind of graveyard smash you're throwing this year, party planner Sari Kurtzner is here to help. Sari, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, so... Let's imagine that, you know, you are more of an adult now. You want to have a low-key, classy Halloween party, just like Katie's friends here. What are your tips? Okay, so if it's really going to be low-key, then keep it low-key. Don't invite more than, let's say, 12 people total. Um, For an adult's low-key, you want to dim the lights and spark up tons of candles. Check this out. This is a candle holder. It's a snake. How cute is that? Taylor Swift would love it. Yeah. Taylor Swift is shook. (laughs) Um, So cool. Let's see if we can get the viewers to check this out. It's like a little, it's like, it is, it's like a classy Halloween vibe. I know. It's really cool. And if there's no kids, you can have tons of candles and not worry about it, right? True. Yeah. So uh, the other thing is you want to play a really fun playlist. Type in thriller and then, you can hit the radio, you know, start radio, and they'll play tons of spooky music, which is really fun. So it's like a classy wine, got some cool little exactly. decorations, got some cool music. I like it, yeah, I like it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I was talking on the show yesterday that I'm really cheap. I heard. And, <laughs> and I always, every time I'm invited to a costume party, I'm kind of like, ugh. So how can okay. you, oh my gosh. That's Guess so, what? Guess that is what? so cute. Guess how much this was. How much? Three bucks. Like, sorry, but if you're invited to a costume party, you can put out three bucks. You can find three bucks in quarters. That's true. Right? That's true. Look how cute you look. Thanks, Thanks, everyone. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm not that cheap. I can do three bucks. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So when I saw that segment, I literally brought this for you, and I thought, boom, she's ready for a costume party. So... Let, okay, so imagine that you're throwing a costume party yeah. and you want it to be really fun, that your friends are invited or excited to go to and not yeah. like, oh, I have to go to a costume party, I have to get a costume. What should you do? Well, what I suggest is actually setting a theme. 
Okay, so whether it's an, an 80s prom or a masquerade ball, we just actually did DIY masquerade masks on our blog the other day. The masks cost, I think it was, it was a few bucks for like 12 black masks. And you can gather supplies from your local craft store like feathers, jewels, beads, puffy paint, and make these masks. You can even have it as an activity at the actual party. People can make their own mask and then nobody needs to go out and come with a costume. Oh my God, that's so, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you can just have people, force people to make their own costume at yeah. the party and then yeah. they don't complain. Yeah, that then is, no one's shelling out all this money and, you know, oh, I gotta go to a costume party. This is so, you know, gonna be so expensive. That's such a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we mentioned that if we're gonna have a bunch of candles around, we're not gonna have it be a party with a bunch of kids. Right. But, you know, some people are entering the stage of life where they do have kids and yep. they wanna have a fun party that kids can enjoy and adults can enjoy. Right. What do they do? Well, I'm your token party planning mother. I have two kids. And one of the things we did in our business is come up with these party boxes for people just like me who don't have time to go to the store and find all these supplies. So you basically just get your hands on one of these boxes and it's instant tableware and decor. Okay, fun Halloween balloons. You've got these spooky spiders that you can hang up. I mean, you guys can literally set this up the morning of your party. And for family-friendly fun, I suggest having a post-trick-or-treating party. Okay, go trick-or-treating with the kids, invite everyone over after, keep it simple, keep it low-key. The activity for the kids will be trading their candy, sorting and trading candy. Yeah. If that goes too quickly and they get bored, pop on a movie, like Coco, perfect for Halloween. And while they're doing that, the adults can, you know, just have some wine. They can and hang and have wine, exactly. Genius, right? Okay, so... I'm not that super into Halloween parties, like I said before, like dressing up. But my husband, whenever he was little, would always try to make his Halloween parties super, super scary. He had right. all these ways to make scary parties. And I know some people are really into this terrifying stuff. So what is what, what are some cool ways to you know, spook people as they come to your gathering. Okay, so this is what I suggest. First of all, tons of carved pumpkins, okay? Put candles in them and turn off all the lights. Then put on a scary movie so that when people walk in, you're hearing people screaming and blood splattering. <laughs> and they're like, wow, this is really scary. Okay, one more thing, this is really funny. At your local craft stores, you can find those plastic black spiders. Put them everywhere, put them in the bathroom, put them on people's cups, put them on the table. I, people will scream. Like the girls had them at our, in our office in the bathroom the other day, I literally jumped like 10 feet because I didn't expect it. That's you so think it's fun. a real spider. And it's, it's like set so easy and so cheap and so, so easy. Yeah. Well, Sari, thank you so much for joining thank us. I, I feel like now, you know, I have a costume. I'm ready to go to any party. So anyone invite me. I'm not, I'm not a hater anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Up next, Isaac sits down with Joel Edgerton and Boy Erased author Garrett Conley. This is The Sit Down and I'm here with Garrett Conley, author of Boy Erased, and Joel Edgerton, the film director who brought Garrett's story to life. Good morning, guys. How we doing? Very good. Great. Really appreciate you guys coming on. Congrats on a great film. Thank you. So, Garrett, I wanted to start with you. Um, the film is about your memoir, which is about you being in the conversion therapy program when you're a teenager. For those that don't know, what's conversion therapy? So, it's a form of torture, basically, um, designed to change people from LGBTQ to straight, which is impossible. It's not anything you can change. Um, it's been around actually since, I guess, like the 18th and 19th century. Um, but in the 1950s and 60s, uh, St. Elizabeth's Hospital was performing lobotomies, electroshock therapy, and the kind that I went to um, was psychological torture. Was psychological torture? Yeah. How did you get to the point where you could trust somebody 
trust Joel with um, transcribing your story to film. Yeah, I mean, Joel wanted me to write the screenplay and I didn't want to. And uh, I was like, I can't do that again. <laughs> um, and then like also he met with all these survivors. I'd seen him doing his film Loving. Um, he On that film, he'd gone around and like talked about marriage equality. So I knew he was a good ally. And then, you know, when we talked about everything, we were like, we want to make sure that conversion therapy reaches, that the topic of it reaches as many people as possible so that, like, no one is surprised when I say 700,000 people have been in conversion therapy in America alone. 700,000 people. Yeah. And Joel, what, what, what was it about the story that made you want to direct the film and act in it? <clears throat> well, I was looking for a project to make. I wasn't sure what that was going to be. I knew I wanted to put something positive out into the world and I read Garrett's memoir on the recommendation of my now producer Carrie Roberts who, who had read it. It got under her skin in a way and she, she gave the book to me. I read it because I was fascinated growing up and very fearful of and had nightmares about and made my prayers all about not wanting to be institutionalized, being locked up against my will, taken away from my family and put in prison or um, sent to the military. So I, I read the book for kind of morbid curiosity reasons, mm -hmm. the subject matter. What I came out of the book with was, was this incredible emotional response to Garrett's family story and it got under my skin in a way that I, I truly use the words obsession and possession because every day after I put the book down it, I, it was in my head, I was thinking about it, I was like how do we keep pushing it forward and I wanted to meet Garrett and then meet other survivors and, 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 and every day we just kept moving on and then before you knew it we were ready to make a movie about it. Because it, yeah. it happened so quick, like I mean I was a big yeah. fan of the book when it came out and it was only a couple of years he ago, was, right? like calling me up every day and being like, what if, what if I wrote this? And I'm like, just do it Joel, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just try it out. Just go for it. I was um, in Budapest uh, yeah, shooting another movie and I had a lot of downtime because I was, I was playing some supporting character and, I, and I'd pick up the phone when I was in my hotel room pacing around and like, Garrett, about this and tell me more about that and I'm, I'm gonna send you some scenes and yeah, I, I, I kind of turned into a bit of a madman about it. And it's really weird, I can't actually articulate why somebody else's life strikes such a mm. chord with your own that you're willing to kind of jump on board their life as a passenger Be and become, for that long. And become obsessed with it. And, and, and your care for the story really does come out in the film. Uh, Garrett, you brought up family too, right? Because it is, it's a family story. Yeah. Garrett, your parents are a big part of the story in the memoir and a big part of the film. How do they feel about how they're portrayed in it? Well, mom was just at the Toronto Film Festival and saw it for the first time. Oh. And she was like, I was so nervous. I mean, her hand was like gripping mine and hurting. Like it was, I'd never felt her like that. Um, and then whenever she came up on the stage like and talked with Nicole and, and everyone it, it just felt like the right like she said that it, it was totally accurate it felt like a great story um, and it was wonderful to see her also sort of come out as well as someone who's supporting the LGBTQ community and that is not a small thing for her mm. you know she's from small town Arkansas it's still incredibly hard to live there in, in many ways and be out and proud. Mm. And it is sort of indicative of, you know, different parts of America and different communities obviously have different views on this. It's very easy to preach to the converted, which is 
an aspect about how do we push the movie out that, that we're really trying to be cognizant of. It's easy to show people who want to see the material. It's mm. great as an identifier. It's, great. it's a great guide for, for, for parents, I think, to, to who are examining their own choices. But it is interesting seeing Martha come to New York like, like last night at the premiere here and, and be a hero in New York. But I also worry for her then yeah. just what standing behind this subject means because she's so strong to do so mm -hmm. to then go back to a town where it's not like new york where everybody's high-fiving her and, and they may her not, as such a hero and they may not have those feels what is to speak on that though what what is one of the things or some of the things and and this is to both of you that you hope parents who are maybe struggling with their own children's sexuality takes away from the film well it was definitely a, i i think something i learned was I, I always imagined that, that the coming out was, was, was always for, for the child, it was the drama that surrounded a child and their concern of doing it and their reticence to do it, the sort of uh, anxiety about doing it and so on. What I learned was how much anxiety parents take on board. You know, I, I, I remember my mum seeing me and my brother as such a reflection of her and my dad having to say, look, if they want to behave like that, if they want to do this, if they want to have silly haircuts, it's got nothing to do with you. Mm. I think we feel so connected in a family that I worry for parents that they make it too much about themselves. And, and there is an honest concern for them about how do they come out in their own way to their community or do the, does it become this dirty secret? The film is, a because of his family stories, is a roadmap of sorts for parents to identify with. Anyway, I want and, you to answer no, and that, that and question. And that's, and that, it's, yeah. it, it does, it comes across your father kind of has that moment where he's making it so much about himself, to your point. That's always been the case. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that in, in addition to giving a roadmap to parents, I, I've spoken with a lot of survivors who've seen it, and we've had several who, who've gone to screenings, and they're really proud that there's this document that's extremely accurate about their experience. It's not exaggerated, it's not Hollywooded up. Mm -hmm. It's like, for better or worse, that is, that is the true story. Um, so there's that. I think also, you know, I really want to use this platform to extend solidarity to other stories, like trans stories. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been talking a lot about uh, Layla Alcorn, who, who killed herself because she was sent to a conversion therapy place. Um, and she asked people in her note to, to accept who she was. And so I really, you know, I think this is a jumping off point where we can begin to talk about the effects not only of, you know, camp-based conversion therapy, but the kind of conversion therapy writ large that's happening right now with our administration that's basically redefining and, and trying to falsely define people um, and erase them. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what I really hope. And, and it's been great, you know, the book was one document, the movie is another that I think can really work to get into communities that might not otherwise pay attention to my book. And, and then we've got this podcast coming out called Unerased from the producers of, of Radiolab, and it's coming out November 2nd, and it looks at the full history of conversion therapy. So I'm just like so thrilled that Joel has like added this new dimension to to the story of conversion therapy. And, and, and I do have to ask, because there is this new dimension, Russell Crowe, Nicole Kidman, incredible performances in it. I feel like you're just like, oh, I'll just call people in Australia. I think that's how it works. Don't, don't, don't ruin yeah. my beautiful thought on that. But I did want to add, like, what does it mean to you guys? You guys are getting Oscar buzz. And what does it mean to you as a director, as an actor? What does it mean to you to have your life story getting this kind of attention? Well, it's, it's, it's actually, you know, the, the, 
The film business is interesting. I, I was always, and have always been obsessed with film. The business angle is, is actually really worth educating yourself about, especially when it comes to pushing small movies out into the world. It's like, how do you get the most eyes on this film as possible, which is what we need. So um, putting movie stars in a movie is a really good way for just people out there to identify with actors they love, like Nicole, like Russell, and, 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 and them getting behind the subject and being advocates just by taking on the roles is a very important thing. Russell and Nicole, they weren't my speed dial kind of Aussie, <laughs> but it wasn't like, like you know, go That's down the street, avoid the kangaroos and knock on Russell's door. Um, they were Garrett's uh, they just like genealogy. I mean, he's, he's like, he's, mum and dad, when I saw the family photos, which he loved, he sent to me, I was like, oh, there's Russell and there's Nicole. And, and I'm so excited to have so many LGBTQ people in front of the camera. You know, mm -hmm. we have Troy Savon, Cherry Jones, which is like my dream come true. Um, Xavier Dolan, who's a wonderful French-Canadian gay director. And, and a lot of people behind the scenes that were queer. And I sent him this crazy like four-page document on LGBTQ representation that to his great credit, he read all of and like helped out with. So. It was really cool. And Trace Vaughn like made music for the for the, oh, yeah. for the movie, right? An amazing song. Yeah, and he collaborated with Jonesy, uh, who has been a great supporter to Jonesy from Seagull Ross, who uh, they wrote the song Revelation together. Troy's other song, um, The Good Side, is in the film, uh -huh. uh, which you know obviously is not a bad thing for us no. considering. Troy is growing faster than Bamboo right now in his career. <laughs> well, listen, I hope this film does grow in the same way. Congrats so much Thank you. on accomplishing. I truly believe what you set out to accomplish, both of you. It's incredible. Um, listen, the Boy Race, I'm sorry, Boy Race premieres in theaters on November 2nd. And up next, Saeed and I read your tweets. Awesome. Welcome back. Shout out to Ashley C. Ford watching the show today, live tweeting the whole way through. Uh, she just tweeted, Boy Erased is a fantastic book. Everybody should read it. And I have to agree. Absolutely. Uh, Garrett's story is an incredible one. He writes so eloquently about it. It's, it's a massively great book. And they did a wonderful yeah. job taking that book and, and putting it on screen. Right. And, and I was very moved by Garrett, who we adore. He is such a, a sweetheart. Uh, connecting that experience to Leela um, and, and, and trans people. And I love that she you know, you pointed out like, like conversion therapy writ large, that like everyone's not sent to a camp to have this experience. Sometimes it's just dinner. Mm -hmm. you know, with our families. Sometimes it's just, you know, religious experiences, you know, of all different faiths and- It's and, and, just yeah. society. Yeah, and it's I, certainly not just gay cisgender people. And I, and I do want to say this, uh, it was a, he brought it up organically, I mm -hmm. was going to ask, but this is a tweet that he tweeted yesterday. Uh, this is the most important issue right now. I'm going to mention it in every interview today, uh, and he's still doing it. So the shout out memo. to him. Yep. Shout out to them. Shout yep. out to you guys. Well, Angel, they were lovely. Yeah. Lovely folks, Australians. He, also, I've got to say, people were coming in, and I don't know if you saw this, you were on set, but um, Joel Etcherton stood at the door and held the door open. For a gentleman. Every person coming through. And a I was like, gentleman. An Australian gentleman. I love it. Well, of course, we asked you when was the last time Twitter made you feel old, which was like, what, 
10 minutes ago uh, for me. Uh, Blasian FMA, you said, I felt old yesterday when all of those Asian cities were trending and I thought there was some kind of international disaster unfolding. Oh my gosh. But it was just BTS fans making all of those places trend. Ah, the youth. They're in it. Trending topics are a consistent source of stress for me. It's like, what? what's happening? Why is that? What's? Huh? Says the guy that's making Outlander trend like every single day. Sherry Foreman, you had this to say, Twitter makes me feel old whenever I hear someone call themselves Gen whatever. My Gen is baby boomer. The end of that spectrum, thank you very much, and doesn't even use the term Gen. And she added, I love this. yes, I know how to, and have burned a CD. I love it. Shout out Shout to Shout out, Sherry. Sherry. Absolutely. <laughs> Sherry's like, don't get it twisted. <laughs> She's like, all right. <laughs> I may be a baby boomer, but I can burn a CD. Yeah, not all baby boomers. I love it. Thank <laughs> you for watching, Sherry. All right. Thank you to our guests. Absolutely. What a Tuesday. I mean, I well, there's some little extra caffeine you in our coffee You feeling good? Feeling, you feeling up? We're having fun. Thank you to Hayes Brown, Ben Smith. We always love getting to harass Ben on Absolutely. camera. Absolutely. Sandra Villa, Malcolm Jamal Warner. That beard. Yeah, oh, that yeah. beard. Elegant. Yeah. Elegant. Terry Kartzner, Joel Edgerton, and Garrett Conley. Thank you all for being with us today. It was an absolutely fantastic show. Saeed and I will be back here tomorrow. It'll be Wednesday, 10 a.m. See you there. Start preparing now. <laughs>